you can get sued for anything. You can get sued for showing up for work. I think that there is something in the universe that says the drunker you are and the more obnoxious you are, the more likely you are to have something bad. You see the word fresh frozen plasma anywhere in that recommendation? I don't think there's any question that that's the hardest patient for an emergency doc to see. I think physicians ought to know about these kinds of things. That's the one I screwed up. It's got to be 50 ways ways to lose lose your license. (laughs) Yes, it can be ugly. No argument here. Dumb it down. Dumb it. Make it real bad. Why we're doing this, I have no idea. September Risk Management Monthly. Greg, Mel, Rick Bucata here. Good to see you again, Rick. Beautiful fall day. Leaves are changing color. They really are. It is just absolutely gorgeous. We'll be toasting marshmallows (laughs) and roasting chestnuts over a burning wino shortly. It's it's perfect. I think people get ticked off when you keep talking about how wonderful the weather is in California. But don't worry. The big one's coming soon and you can say, I told you so. Yes. (laughs) We'll get ours back in a big way. Yes, yep. when we have to send Greg back to muddy Michigan. Uh, Michigan's just fine. This is a good time of year for us. Well, you know, the August issue was themed. It was about low-risk chest pain. The September issue is not themed. We're going to tell you about that in a second. Because the October issue is also themed. For October, we did an issue that talked about everything that you need to know right before you get sued and during the suit process. It's on one CD Hopefully, you'll never have to listen to it. No, but this may be one you want to keep. And when that registered letter comes in the mail, you may want to pull that CD out. It's actually very useful. For September, we want to do a bit of a smorgasbord, a bunch of assorted little topics. A veritable potpourri of knowledge and information. Exactly. Potpourri. Yes. Given the fact that we did the October issue, we've already done that issue, I mean... Yes. There's no secret how we do this, I don't think. (laughs) Um, On getting sued, I wanted to mention briefly something about asset protection. And I read recently that we often believe that physicians will not be sued above the limits of their insurance policies. And a lot of us have the $1 million, $3 million kind of policies. And I read something that said that is absolutely false. Absolutely false. Because once these lawyers get involved and invested in these cases... They're spending lots and lots and lots of money, and they want to get the maximum return on this. And if, in fact, they think that they can go after your personal assets, you are deluded to think that they're not interested. Well, one thing about emergency medicine, Rick, is that in any lawsuit that I've seen, and I've seen a couple of thousand of these things, nobody ever names just the emergency doctor. The emergency doctor is named in conjunction with his corporation or whoever he works for. So if he's a member of one of the big groups, the big group is named and the doctor's named. Even if you're just a small one hospital group, it almost always has a separate corporate level of insurance, so they name that group. If it takes place in a hospital, which 99% of our stuff does, they name the hospital. If the hospital is part of a larger entity, let's say Hospital Corporation of America, that sort of thing, They name even the larger entity as well. So there's lots of pots of money whenever these cases come up. But you're absolutely right. It's state-dependent, but never believe that they won't go after personal assets. They certainly have a right to do that 
if you cannot fulfill the judgment with insurance proceedings. And what most emergency medicine physicians don't realize is people settle out of these cases, other doctors involved. You may be the last entity in that case. You and the hospital may be the last entity in that case. So you need to understand everybody else who's in that lawsuit with you, nobody is actually your friend when it comes to divvying up the money. Now, we don't claim to be experts in this at all with regard to asset protection, but one of the things I think the message is, if you're going to have a career in emergency medicine, you need to invest a little bit of money, of your own money, to ascertain what you can do to protect your assets, because it's a state-by-state kind of issue. In Florida, as an example, if you own your home, that is a protected asset, and if it's a $20 million home, it's a protected asset. That's not the case in other states, but... I know people who specifically dump lots of cash into their homes in Florida because that's one of the way of protecting $600 a million. Yeah, well, this is a result of what happened during the Depression in the United States and the foreclosure on homes, and particularly in Texas, on small ranchers. So the primary residence, people should understand, if you own two or three homes, you've got a vacation cottage or something like that, that is not protected. Almost always, it's the primary residence where you spend your time not used as an income generator. If you have a home which you're using as a rental property, that's not protected. That's just a financial investment. It's the primary residence, which in a lot of the southern states is off the table. And it just so happens they never cleaned those laws up, and so they never put a cap on them. One of the big gentlemen from manipulating stock had a $120 million property in Florida, none of which could be touched when it came to repaying those stock manipulation debts. He went to prison for a little while, but his wife was sitting on a $120 million piece of property. So is it a good or a bad thing? Well, the point is you should know what your own state laws are and utilize them correctly for your advantage. My understanding is that O.J. Simpson also lives in Florida. (laughs) That's exactly right. By the way, when I teach this to residents, you might as well get the low-hanging fruit first. Number one, the government is giving you money in any retirement program. Qualified pension plans are absolutely off the table in civil litigation. They cannot get at monies you've put aside for retirement. So why wouldn't you day one, even if that year you've spent money, if I had to go out and borrow the money to make the maximum contributions to my retirement funds, I would do that every year. How can you get a better deal than money which grows tax-free until you go and take it out and can't be touched by other people? Secondly, if you have children to not have educational accounts, which again, if properly set up, with the correct paperwork, are totally off the books. They're not a part of your balance sheet. Your kids are going to get it anyway. Okay, I'm here to testify to this. Uh, (laughs) I've got three kids who all I can tell you is when I die and come back, I want to come back as one of my kids. There's no question (laughs) about it. But the point is you're going to do it anyway. Why would you even leave that kind of cash on the table. Just get it out of there. A lot of you have set up corporations or your group has a corporation. There's a major case going on out here in California. It's been going on for a while where it appears that the corporate veil is being pierced and the individual assets of the corporation holders are being sought after. So 
It means that if you're a corporation, unfortunately, you got to act like a corporation and follow all the rules of a corporation. And if you don't, you are opening yourself up to essentially not having a corporation and the protections that you think it provides. So that's kind of another area of potential vulnerability. The lawyers talk about form over substance, not what you set it up and what you call it, but the way it actually behaves. And I think that to not follow those rules, to not have an attorney who set that up correctly and that you follow the rules is a huge mistake. One of the last things to mention is certain states have set up something called family trusts. And this is another way of channeling your money after it comes home to you in such a way that the money is not in your personal account but in a family trust account. Now, there's at least eight states which have the family trust. This case has been litigated about somebody who lives in another state which didn't have family trust set up his trust in the adjoining state, went over and signed the papers and did it. That was held to be legal. The states have an obligation to respect the activity of the other states. My marriage certificate from Michigan would be recognized here in the state of California as if it had taken place in the state of California. I think that the biggest mistake a doc can make is not think about these things in advance. All of a sudden you're sitting there and the train hits you. It's not if you're going to get old. It's just when you get old. It's not if your kids are going to college. It's just when. So you might as well sit down and talk about it now. And I know it isn't fun. And I know you'd rather talk about your vacation and this, that, and other thing. But, you know, this is worth the time. And I think what it really is, when your head hits the pillow at night, sleep better knowing you've taken care of these things. And it's not sitting out there for you. And it's not just lawsuits. What if you're driving around and you hit somebody and kill them? What if you do this or that? There's lots of other ways that you can put the family fortune at risk. Think about it. Just one thing I want to pick up that you said. So, Greg, if you go from Michigan to California and you get divorced in California, are you still brother and sister? Well, that's exactly right. That's in Kentucky. That's Kentucky. Uh, You get the wrong state. The home of the toothbrush, right? Yes. So we also have some updates on some pending matters that we touched on in the past need to be kind of the circle closed. Rick, you've anticipated this. The New York Supreme Court has acted on a case, what we've spoken about earlier in this series. The case was Brian Prasad, who sued New York Presbyterian Hospital because a rectal exam was forced upon him. Now... He wasn't forced to do a rectal. No, he, he, no, no, he wasn't forced to do a rectal. That's what <laughs> we call being recipient. a resident. <laughs> <We're> recipient. <laughs> he was a recipient of a rectal. He had been intoxicated. That was not at issue in the case. And he'd been in a trauma. It was the considered opinion of the physicians working him up that they did the full trauma exam. They listened to his heart. They looked down his throat. They looked in his eyes. And part of the trauma exam, by some training, is doing the rectal. Now, was he yelling and screaming somewhat? Yes. It is their contention that he lacked competence at that time and that they used their substitute judgment to take care of a potentially injured patient. Now, it's very interesting this took place in the state of New York, because New York is the home of the very famous 1914 case of Scholendorf versus Society of New York Hospitals. We've mentioned this before. And Justice Cardozo, who later went on to the Supreme Court of the United States, wrote the judgment in Scholendorf, and it said two things which every emergency doc ought to be aware of. Number one, those of adult years may determine their own health care 
and those with competence, adult years and sound mind, but you have to meet both standards. It is the contention of the people at New York Presbyterian that he did not have clear mind at that moment in time by virtue of the trauma and his intoxication. This went all the way back, incidentally, to the New York Supreme Court where the Schollendorf decision was written in 1914. And again, what they said was they decided the hospital did nothing wrong when it tried to examine the rectum of this patient, the construction worker, who'd been hit on the head. Part of this was a fallen wooden beam. The man sued the hospital. They said that's fine. But they said they're going to stop it right now and not go on to further questions because there was reasonable concern on the part of the healthcare workers involved that he lacked capacity to make an intelligent decision. See, you can't have it both ways. Do you want emergency docs to step away when anybody says no? Or do you want them to use some judgment as to whether you really need the health care? Because every one of us has been in that situation with a patient with altered mental status who screamed at us, yelled at us, insulted our parentage, done the usual sorts of things. And you know what? This was the right decision. This is a brave decision of the New York Supreme Court. And every emergency doc ought to know that. When in doubt, do what you need to do. Fight it out later. Here's the key. If it was your brother, what would you do? If you thought that their mentation was altered, and we're not talking about anything that's unusual here or invasive except a standard rectal examination. Low risk gives you information important in a trauma patient. You know what? The New York justices deserve a kudo here. They did the right thing. Although you and I know that a rectal exam in trauma is ridiculous. <laughs> I, <laughs> so. Wrong issue. We can debate the science of that. The question is... Well, I don't want to have any delusions that this matters. Right, right, exactly. It's the principle here that you're talking about. Right, exactly. We know, I just want to drill down just a little bit. What was he contending, that this was an assault? He contended that it was an assault. That because he'd been hit on the head and that he was confused and this, that, and another thing, he said, I told him, I yelled, I could feel myself being rectalized. And he said, I told him to stop and they didn't. Well, I don't know, sitting around this table, we must have 70 or 80 years of emergency medicine experience. We've all had somebody yelling and screaming after a trauma that we totally ignore and go ahead and do what we got to do. My last patient with two broken legs. I can make the argument that when you have both legs going in different directions, you don't have the capacity to decide whether we should put in a Foley or not. It's just part of the process. But assaults are criminal. Doesn't this have to be go before the district attorney to decide whether he wants to file this or not? Well, two aspects of this case. There's the criminal aspect and the concomitant civil action. I don't have to explain this to you guys. You're from California. Remember, O.J. got off on the criminal aspect, lost the concomitant civil thing. This was going to be civil because, obviously, he was suing New York Presbyterian Hospital for financial damages. What were the damages? Was well, sphincter tone? What were the damages? Now he's hooked on rectals, I guess. I don't know exactly. You've made a very good point. What is the damage to something that's usually and customarily done as a part of the physical exam of American males. I mean, what was the damage here? That's not the point. He was going to say the humiliation, the this and that. Now I'll be afraid to go to doctors the rest of my life. 
All right. Well, I'm updated on that matter. Okay. So when in doubt, do the right thing. And by God, the courts are sticking with us. We like it. Thankfully. Yeah. We like that. Because this comes up every day. It does? Every, every day, day where I work. Really? Intoxicated, drunk, patients, in accidents, <clears throat> screaming, get the hell out of here and right. don't touch me. And I know we my just rights. Ignore them and off we go. The famous line is, I'm going to see you. Enjoyed the very log line of people who said <laughs> yeah, that's that right. this week. Take a number, Chad. <laughs> okay. In any event, the next one I'd like to update is a little more difficult and not quite as happy an ending. This takes place in the state of Indiana, usually a very conservative state and good for medical mail. This had to do with a gentleman by the name of Kevin Llewellyn, who is a registered nurse anesthetist, who on June the 8th, 2003, was involved in a single-car motor vehicle accident. His alcohol level, which they got, was 297. Can I ask you, before you go further, how come you can say his name and sometimes we can't? Well, because this is a completed case. It's finished, and by the way, it's public record. Public record. So once it's done and it's through the courts and it's public record, you can say anything you like. Yeah, well, absolutely. This is published, I'm reading right now, from the Journal of the Healthcare and Risk Management, and they've got the case right here. I think that once it's a completed case and once it's filed and all these records are out there, proceedings of trial are public record in this country unless there's a reason for them to seal them. He quoted before the Schoenberger case. Or whoever, whatever it was. Yes. But I mean, that's one of our faculty. <laughs> that's right. Sorry, Jan. <laughs> this is public record. So tell us. Well, in any event, he was quite intoxicated, was driving, been in an accident. Now... According to those at the hospital, he was loud, rude, needed to be restrained. He went over to x-ray. Were the x-rays perfect? Very difficult to say. But in general, he was a difficult patient. Now, he was sent to jail. The Indiana police were right there taking him to jail. After his discharge, within a short period of time after the discharge, the radiologist on duty, Dr. John Alexander, noted that he thought there was an osteophyte on Mr. Llewellyn's x-rays, we're talking now in the lower back, and it could have been a fracture. Of his osteophyte? Well, it could have been a fracture, but it, it could be an osteophyte or a fracture. This was supposedly transmitted to the emergency department. Now, on arrival at jail, Mr. Llewellyn continued to complain of pain, and at one point, the officers noted in their shift report, Mr. Llewellyn became incontinent of urine. Hello. Hello. This is never a good thing. So drunks don't pee, though, in sidewalks and uh, subways. There's a difference between peeing up against the wall and peeing in your pants when you didn't need to. Well, Incontinence. That's a medical term here, isn't it? That's a medical term, yes. At another point, the officers realized that there was something going on. He went back to the hospital. A CT was done, and the burst fracture in his lumbar spine impinging on his spinal cord was noted, and he currently at the time of the trial, currently had trouble with urination and defecation on his own and some degrees of sexual dysfunction. Now, where do we get sued on this thing? Well, there's an MTALA question. Was he actually screened correctly? He also brought action, and this is very interesting, and Rick, we're going to have a legal scholar such as yourself, quote from the amendment involved, he sued under the 8th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which, as you all know, talks about excessive bail, but the end of that talks about cruel and unusual punishment. He's saying that sending him back with a fracture 
without further care, without working up the problem, actually violates the Eighth Amendment to the United States? That's an interesting question. This actually is going to the federal circuit court for adjudication. The court held, and by the way, (laughs) the court held that a jury could find that the screening examination was so cursory that it was not designed to identify acute and severe symptoms and thus did not meet the requirements of EMTALA. So we have an EMTALA violation Mm. and the court held that the damage cap imposed by Indiana's Medical Malpractice Act limiting the damages can be assessed against this particular hospital under the current laws and current jurisdiction. So we have two ways of getting sued here on this case. But I think if we step back, I think we ought to talk about the patients who do get you in trouble. Here's a guy who's drunk and he's rude and he's got a complaint. I don't think there's any question that that's the hardest patient for an emergency doc to see. Because there's no question that without some cooperation, without some positive feedback, with a guy spitting telling you to go something to yourself, it's going to lower your ability to function in defense of that patient. Is that a fair statement? No argument here. These are difficult cases. What we're really doing is putting out a warning here to emergency docs. When they come in, when they bring them in, you got to do the same kind of care that you would have given to the nicest little old lady in the world, to the attractive 25-year-old blonde who isn't drunk. All these people get the same level of care no matter who they are and what they are, and you can't let that overshadow the kind of care you give. In fact, it should be a trigger, and Jerry was the person who first taught me this. When I go in the room and I think, oh, then I've got to be really, really careful. As soon as I have that gut reaction, then I'm likely to make a mistake. And so I actually have to double my efforts with this person, not just give the same standard of care, at least cognitively. I have to do even more because my gut reaction and now my cortex is saying, I just don't want to deal with you. Get them out of here. It seems disproportionate, the number of obnoxious, drunk people who end up having something bad. I think that there is something in the universe that says the drunker you are and the more obnoxious you are, the more likely you are to have something bad. The more they say, leave me alone, you be, I don't want you to touch me the more likely they are to have the spleen, the fracture. Right. And no one contests in this case that he had bad behavior. No one contests a blood alcohol of 297. No one contests the problems. What they're contesting is, did you reshoot the films? Did you get the picture you needed to answer the question? And when you sent them back, there's also some questions about exact instructions when he went back to the jail and and all that sort of thing. Believe me, the hospital wasn't the only one sucked into this because now we have hours in the jail when somebody whose alcohol is wearing off, unless they're serving drinks, the alcohol level's going down. They're bitching about pain and the guards note incontinence of urine. You know, there's plenty of unhappiness to go around on this particular case. You know, Billy says it another way when he does his lecture on sedation of the agitated patient. The reason that you need to often take charge, hold people down, sedate them, is not to protect yourself from them swinging at you, but to protect them from themselves. So that I can do a complete 
and thorough exam because I don't want to miss anything to protect the patient. If you think of it from that point of view, you're more likely to do the right thing. Right. Well, the legal principle here is very broad. It basically says that if somebody is sent home from the emergency department and subsequently has a nasty, nasty problem that you missed, they can contend that you violated EMTALA in that the medical screening examination was inadequate to identify this serious case here. Now, EMTALA is basically $25,000 per or $50,000 per. Hospital can be shut down in something like three weeks or something like that. It is a big deal because <clears throat> of their ability to get Medicare patients, etc. Et but cetera. here's the important point. EMTALA is a fine. It does not preclude the civil litigation action. Oh, it's in addition to? It's addition to. We're not going to make you just miserable being suing you. We're going to shut down your hospital in the process, and the government's going to come and check all your records. It's going to be nasty. Yes, it can be ugly. So I would only point out that although it's very, very difficult to deal with these patients, you got to kind of do it right. And sometimes you have to keep them around until the alcohol's dropped enough you can carry on reasonable conversation. Isn't this a principle underutilized in terms of suing for Imtala violations because you sent this person home and now look what they have and they contend you didn't do a good enough job to ascertain whether there was a Imtala defined emergency? Well, they can always do that. What was interesting in this case, however, is the court actually went through the screening examination question, the quality of the x-ray question. They did a good job on this to come back and say, yes, a reasonable jury could find that the screening examination was so cursory that it was not designed to identify acute and severe symptoms. I mean, the court is not totally blind to this issue, and I think they did a pretty decent job here. It's a little bit concerning to me, though, because it's not like he didn't get any imaging. They may have screwed up the read, but see, to me, cursory is he comes in... He's drunk, you're like, you're fine, get the heck out of here. Or sit in the corner for the next yeah. eight hours. But this guy up. was clearly seen and they did some mm -hmm. films. And so to me, that's not cursory. They may have been wrong, but it wasn't cursory. I wouldn't think this would be an MTOL violation. I don't want them to, to go there and say, well, what you really need on all these people is a CT and MRI. No, 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 no. And I don't think the court was going that far. They were talking about the total package of the way he was handled. They didn't send him back for other films when the first ones weren't very good. They didn't follow up with the reading that came from radiology within a short period of time after he left the hospital. I mean, I don't think anybody ever approached, do you need a CT or an MRI in this case? That wasn't the court's point of view. So anyway, there's something to follow up with. Mally, did you want to do off-label use of drugs? Yeah, something's been coming up recently that I just wanted to have Greg's expert opinion on, and that is the off-label use of drugs. Now, this has come up in our department, and it's also come up, for those of you that have been giving lectures and stuff, you realize that there's an entirely new ACGME requirement for getting your CME accreditation. One of the things that they're really pushing on is saying, if you're going to give a talk and you're going to talk about a drug, and you're going to talk about a use of a drug that is not FDA-approved, and off-label, therefore indication for a drug you have to disclose that and talk about it it comes up because i think the nurses are starting to get this and they're very concerned 
is what you're telling me to do with this Haldol IV or this drug for a kid, is it off-label? I'm very anxious. Am I going to get sued unless this is exactly the way the drug company presented the data to the FDA? That's on-label. The FDA says, you've brought us this drug, you did all these trials, we're going to say you can use this drug under exactly these circumstances in this age range for this condition. But the vast majority of the ways we use drugs are off-label. We use drugs in kids that have never really been FDA-approved in kids, but it's done by everybody and it's in the literature, but it was never FDA-approved. So this off-label use of drugs, if I do that, Greg, can I get sued? You can get sued for anything. You can get sued for showing up for work. The point is, is it reasonable? Is it usual and customary? For example, right now with the Zofran issue, a lot of papers are coming out that a little Zofran goes a long way in that vomiting child who will not hold things down. We've talked about this use a long time, but I don't remember that Zofran, particularly is in the PDR, has been approved for children's use. Well, you don't mean Zofran. You mean Odansetron. 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 Sorry about that. <laughs> and, like, I'm not sure with the Odansetron, but it was one that came up. And I know with Haldol, I don't think Haldol was ever approved for the IV use of sedating patients. So that's another example that we use every single day. So By the gallon. By, by the mega gallon. So yes. there's a billion different drugs. If you really look at what their original FDA approval was, it's very narrow. And yet in our experience, our everyday practice, and in the literature, it says it's okay because a reasonable physician would use it for all these other well, indications. Well, the FDA approval has to do with the studies that are presented to the FDA at that moment in time. The real reason that some of these aren't FDA approved is that it's never been studied in that group of patients, but the reasonable physician would say its effects should be expandable to this other group of patients, and we do that all the time. I think that the FDA is behind on this, and we need to kind of move ahead. I think the question that we'd be asked in law is, what would the reasonable physician the physician of like or similar training do under like or similar circumstances. And we can present a huge body of evidence, for example, in the use of Haldol, that it is the usual and common practice around the country to give it IV. Or droperidol. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Droperidol, actually. One of my favorite drugs, which now the hospital I don't even think stocks anymore only because they're so afraid of this black box warning. And Fennigan just got one, and it's like every drug has got a black box warning. Oh, yeah, Fennigan's really a killer. Yeah, yeah. It's only been used 50 billion times in 30 years. <laughs> right. Greg, did you have another case or two? Yeah, I have a couple more I'd like to review since they've been adjudicated. One of these is in a failure to inform a family of a positive blood culture for a child. You know, there's nothing worse than asking a question and getting an answer and not letting the patient know what the answer is. It's dangerous stuff. And so what happened was no arrangements were made for the treatment or hospitalization of this child with positive blood cultures. The child goes on to develop a bacterial endocarditis and requires open-heart surgery. This is a Texas case. And by the way, I can't tell you how much it went for because it was a restricted or a private settlement. But in the case... Everything had to do with what was going to happen to that blood culture when it came back to the emergency department. My plea to you is, if you're going to send off a blood study, make sure somebody is going to follow up on it. 
And all of us have been sitting there in the department, and they come up with a list of yesterday's or the day before's blood cultures. Somebody's got to take the time and go through those, and it's yes or it's no. Most of it's nothing. That's the problem. Most of us see continuous series of nothing, or I'd say it's a urine culture, which is susceptible to the antibiotic they gave it to. E. coli. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. And we just check the thing off. But what you can't do is ignore the piece of paper that's coming back. It'll eat you alive. That's exactly what happened in this case. Well, also there's this issue of documentation. I called the wife. I spoke to the mother. I spoke to her at this time. This is what we said kind of thing. Oftentimes the chart has already gone to medical records. This is now two days later. You have to generate a new piece of paper. That needs to go to medical records. And most of the smarter hospitals have forms where they basically fill this out. We have a form, which I think is really quite good, actually, where we put down what phone number was called, because sometimes there's no answer. Sometimes they gave you the wrong phone number. So there's this whole process of what reasonable people would be expected to do to get this information to the party that needs it. By the way, for those of you who are listening, who are into looking these cases up, this is Stephanie Nichols versus Columbia Medical Center of Arlington, Texas, And this case was settled in the district court of Tarrant County, Texas, in the very just recent past. I got a question then about, there are sometimes we do tests which we don't care about, but are requested by third parties, some specialist or somebody says, you know what, really be helpful while you're there to get the serum mitochromial antibody. And I don't know what to do with the result of that test, but to help out a colleague who's going to see the person down the line, I get the test, or maybe a TSH. It's not going to come back for a few days, but that might help somebody. Then, like, do I need to look up every test result that I did, or are there some that I can reasonably be assured that somebody else can follow up? But if they don't, I'm not going to get in trouble for. There are two ways you can be assured. Number one, if they're admitted, somebody else is going to look at the test. You can't follow up every admitted patient. That's ridiculous. The second one is if you've contacted someone or they've contacted you and you've written on the chart Dr. Smith to check the result, because really what you're getting a TSH for would be something down the line. You're not getting that for an emergent problem tonight. You're doing it part of their broader workup. Then you properly transferred that responsibility. But I'm not in favor of the willy-nilly ordering of tests which are thrown out to the winds that we don't know what's going to happen to it. Never ask a question you do not want to know the answer to or that someone is not going to check on. It's just bad medical care. All right, I got it. I think you have one more about somebody had some bleeding. Oh, yes, we do. This is a case which has to do with bleeding in a 73-year-old woman who is on what drug, gentlemen? Coumadin. Coumadin. Okay, the drug of death. (laughs) Uh, Failure to timely treat elevated bleeding times. She died from a cerebellar hemorrhage. And there was a decision, a $325,000 Massachusetts settlement. It never went to the jury. It was settled. Now, it isn't a huge amount of money, but then again, it's a 73-year-old who's not actively working at that point in time. The point of the case is we've got somebody with Coumadin who comes in who's diagnosed on CT scan with a cerebellar hemorrhage. How aggressive do we need to be? Because there's certainly arguments that say, no matter what you do in this case, the outcome's the same. Rick, you know about this. Well, I don't think a jury is going to be very sympathetic to that reasoning. I mean, they're going to say, 
Well, had you stopped the bleeding or tried to stop the bleeding, this person have a better chance? I mean, the logical man principle. And we do know that factor 7A has been involved in trials looking at, well, if we can decrease the amount of the clot size in somebody's head who's bleeding, will we get a better outcome? And those studies have said, no, we won't, although they were able to show our clots are smaller when we use factor 7A than well, when we did. Then I think it's important when they bury them that they have smaller clots. I mean, that's critically important. Right? Well, well, one of the reasons I think that this is important is because we not infrequently see people who have life-threatening hemorrhages who are on Coumadin. And for some reason, their INR has kind of bumped up now to some number. Or it could be, you know, in the quote-unquote therapeutic range. And we're supposed to do something about it. It may be a GI bleed. It may be a situation of trauma. It may be a vaginal bleed. It may be a brain bleed. It's going to be some nasty bleed. And they're on warfarin. And so the issue here is what are we supposed to do about these cases? And the reason we're talking about this here in the medical legal setting is because if you ask most physicians, well, what do you do about something like that? They'd say, oh, fresh frozen plasma. And that's the answer to all the quiz questions. Kind of fresh frozen plasma gives them IV vitamin K. And I would like to suggest that there may be some issues here because I'm going to quote. This is from the American College of Chest Physicians. This was published in Chest in a supplement in 2004. And it's the recommendations of the American College of Chest Physicians for what to do to reverse Coumadin's. In the setting of life-threatening bleeding, they say, number one, hold warfarin. No argument there. Yeah, good, good idea. <laughs> and give prothrombin complex concentrate supplemented with vitamin K, 10 milligrams by slow IV infusion. Recombinant factor 7A may be considered as alternative prothrombin complex concentrate. Repeat if necessary, depending on the INR. And do you see the word fresh frozen plasma anywhere in that recommendation? of the American College of Chest Physicians and Life-Threatening Bleeding? The answer is no. Let me quote to you one other thing that I think that you may find interesting. This is from the 2005 guidelines of the British Committee for Standards in Hematology, specifically talking about the same case, life-threatening bleeding. Reversal of anticoagulation, is a quote, in patients with major bleeding requires administration of a factor concentrate in preference to, in preference to fresh frozen plasma when this is available. They also talk about IV vitamin K. So here is two organizations, one of them in the United States, saying, no, 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 it isn't fresh frozen plasma. It is this other product which most of us are not familiar with. Now, you can get into the literature and say, well, I'm not so sure it's compelling that this is the way to go. And I must also tell you that the American College of Chest Physicians recommendation was a 2004 one. They just came out with a brand new one. And in this paragraph, now they have put back fresh frozen plasma. Not because I believe that there's any new evidence to say this is the thing to do now, because I think that they realized they painted themselves into a nasty corner by saying the standard of care, what you should do is prothrombin complex concentrate, and that fresh frozen plasma doesn't enter the equation here. And so I think it's important for emergency physicians who are often in the position of trying to reverse these bleeding patients to know that there's another alternative out there and that, in fact, some learned people who are not necessarily invested in this say that there's a number of products that you should be aware of. They're all generically called prothrombin complex concentrates, factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, protein C and S. And we're going to put into this our little four-page summary at one of our abstracts. It's entitled, Urgent Reversal of Warfarin with Prothrombin Complex Concentrates from the Christiana Care Center in Newark, Delaware. 
I think it's important. The answer may not be fresh frozen plasma. The other thing that comes up all the time is, well, how much do you give? And I've asked audiences, give me a number. And they say, oh, mm, two, three, uh, mm, two. Uh. The answer is to stop, to take an INR of three and a half down to one and a half, you need 15 to 20 mLs per kilo. In a 200-pound person, you need two liters of fresh frozen plasma that has to be thawed and given to achieve this goal. Most people have no concept of the amount of fresh frozen plasma that is needed. Most of our hospitals, particularly rural hospitals, don't have two liters of fresh frozen. I'm concerned that I don't want these documents used against emergency physicians and say, well, doctor, were you not aware that there are some other things to use and that they may be better in this life-threatening person? Are you familiar with the American College of Physicians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And I, oh, oh, I said et cetera three times. You did. I, <laughs> yeah, 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 I can't yeah. do that. I think physicians ought to know about these kinds of things. We'll put the abstract into our notes. I want to take just a second and compliment the New England Journal of Medicine. What do you say, boys? We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. worthy. George Annis has a piece. He's a JD and a MPH entitled Doctors, Drugs, and Driving, Tort Liability for Patient-Caused Accidents. This is a great piece Because it reminds us that you and I, and we've talked about this previously in our series, we have some responsibility for the broader society. When you give people a prescription that requires a DEA number, you have stated that they have a drug which can alter their perception and their capabilities from a neurologic standpoint. This article goes on to talk about the fact that, yes, that when they go out and then they've caused an accident... Those people can come back at the doctor involved. Now, he doesn't specifically speak to emergency physicians in this article, but clearly he's talking about physicians who write, and he's using the generic, the general physician. But emergency docs have to realize every time they've given some Percodan, a warning ought to be given, or that ought to be on the common warning sheet about not driving or operating dangerous equipment. And I compliment the New England Journal for this timely and intelligent piece. Actually, we covered that in a recent issue, I think, because I saw the thing that Graham Billingham's company sent out advising their doctors about a successful lawsuit against somebody who hit a kid. And they claimed that, well, you didn't tell me about this, doctor. Duty <laughs> to unknown but predicted third parties. Thinking back, Dram Shop, is that what it was? The bartender can't keep handing you drinks without expecting that he could get in trouble if he then puts you in a car to drive? Is that That's the... right. If you're actually sloppy drunk, if he goes to ask you for a drink and you are sitting on the floor and someone is actually walking on you, he's not supposed to give you another drink. That's called Dram Shop liability. But believe me, that law is broken about as often as the New York jaywalking ordinance say <laughs> As you know, Greg does a lot of medical legal work, and over the years, he's accumulated this little list of uh, 50 ways to lose your license. Is that what it is entitled? Yes, it is. Exactly. We may not do all 50, but Greg, you're going to give us what you think to be the... Come on, we're going to do the song. It's got to be 50 (laughs) 50 ways to lose your license. license. Yeah. 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 All right. We're going to move on from that unfortunate bit of musical interlude and talk about some general comments, things that I've watched over the years... And I want to throw this out and let you guys comment on them. First one is, keep patients waiting. What do you think? That's a great idea. (laughs) Keep waiting. We're going to start seeing cases from this. The waiting time's going up and up and up. The number of ER visits this year, according to the ASIP newsletter, 
120 million. The number right. of ERs gone down significantly. Waiting times going up. Right. The number of ERs, however, is not quite as important as the number of beds and the number of doctors seeing the patients. It's probably a good idea in certain urban areas that some of the smaller ERs close because, A, number one, they couldn't provide the facilities they needed to. They couldn't have the correct number of on-call people. I agree with you that we're trying to do more and more with less and less to the point where they think we can do everything with nothing. (laughs) But it's the perception the patient has about the waiting. It's not the waiting time. Mike Hill, who was the past president of California ASEP and a good guy who's looked at this question, says it's not the number of minutes. It's what they think happened during that period of time because time is variable. You've all been in lectures that you thought, This lecture, I must have been here an hour, and you look at your watch, and it's 15 minutes. You've been in others where you've been there an hour and a half, and you think it's 10 minutes. And so it's sort of how they're treated during that period of time, how they're greeted, what goes on. But unnecessary waiting, we'd like to blame every other facility and every other problem in the hospital. But you know what? I think our own people get into this mindset. I know a lot of our support staff techs, nurses get into this thing. If all the rooms are full, then good. Why? Because then we don't have to bring anybody else back. And I think that they've gotten into a productive mindset that says, we can only see so many per hour. I don't think that's right. I think we can do a better job. And I remember starting out in this business, we used to move people from the emergency department after they had their blood drawn or they're waiting for something. They went to a kind of a waiting room They didn't stay in the examination room. Why not do that again? There's a ton of things we can do. I don't know whether we would go through them here in a risk management thing. But, yes, fundamentally, we have terrible reputations. We have the reputation that we don't care about your time. Our time is more important than your time. Can't you see we're busy? Please have a seat, and we'll get to you when we can. That's the way so many of us operate. And yet the fact of the matter is is that we don't necessarily have to do that. These people come in with a chip on their shoulder because they say, I've been here an hour now. I don't feel good kind of thing. I hurt. Is there only one doctor here? So that they come in with a negative perception right off the get-go because we have chosen to operate like that. I mean, there are clearly things we can do. At our hospital, we have a 30-minute door-to-doctor time. Every one of our doctors and every one of our PAs and every one of the clerks and staff and nurses know that it's 30 minutes door-to-doctor, not door-to-triage, it's door-to-doctor. And we see 70 patients a day, 65 patients a day, one doctor, hospital, 10 hours of PA time. But you can make that happen should you choose to. You don't have to do the whole history and physical. It's just, hi, how are you? I'm Dr. So-and-so. I understand you got some things going on here with your knee. I'm going to try to get you comfortable, and I'll come back and see you in a bit. Those kinds of things matter. I think that our reputation as an industry is embarrassing about making patients wait. Everybody in the community knows you're going to have to wait when you go to the ER. It's bad. All right. Well, if you think that that isn't enough to get your license taken away, try this one. Don't sit down. You know, everybody knows that when you're giving out a personal service, they have to like you, relate to you. Put an extra chair in that room, and even if you have to ask Dad to stand up or something, sit down. When you're down at the same level as the patient is, they get to look at you. They get to look at your face. All the studies done on this say that if you sat down, the patient thinks you spent twice as much time with them in the examination room. And some of these studies were done by the AMA where they had video recordings as to how long and then asked people, what did they think? 
How long did it take? They thought it was twice as much time. You know what? I'm old now. I need to sit down. But the patients like that. They believe this. If you're off your feet, you're on their case. Well, one of the issues here is uh, charting. Where do you do your charting? Now with all this computerized electronic medical records, you have to be in front of a computer screen someplace to do your charting, at least theoretically. And it's so much more pro-patient, I think, to be able to sit down, take a pen, and they actually say, oh, they're writing this stuff down. Actually, they can, they're concerned about this. They said, what a thorough job that he did. So I think that there is a cost to charting at the desk. We often may prefer to chart at the desk or in private, but it's really simple to get just get that clipboard, sit down. I think you get a lot of mileage out of it. Does it prevent any lawsuits? Well, I don't frankly know whether it prevents any lawsuits, but you have so little time to make it clear to these people that you are their advocate, you value their time, you are going to try to do the best job you can. The only thing we can do in this series is put you in the most reasonable position to do two things. Give out great patient satisfaction, and number two, stay out of court, and they do run together. We talked about this on one of the tapes that there is no question that doctors who had worse bedside manner had more summons and complaints arriving at their house. That's true. And I think that the bedside manner technique, we don't teach much anymore, and I think that's unfortunate. I know how old-fashioned this sounds, but I think it would be good for the first-year residents to actually watch some of the attendings, saying hi to the patients, introducing themselves, doing the correct exam, so that they got to see how experienced people really do this. That's how the flow of care goes on. All right, let's get another one here. If you want to lose your license and get sued, write. So see your doctor, if not better, end quotation marks, on all charts. Why is this a problem? Because that gives no direction to anybody. No one knows what to do with see your doctor, if not better. If you said, see Dr. Smith in 24 hours, we can all relate to that. Or if it said, you will be back here to be reexamined in 12 hours, we understand that. But when you throw out something which no one knows how to interpret, then all you have is confusion. Patients don't like poetry. They like prose. They want to be told what to do and when to do it. And if you haven't told them what to do and when to do it, then it's open to interpretation. That's what the law is all about, is interpretive questions. But how do you deal with the tension of I want to keep it vague enough so that if something comes up that I don't specifically list, that they'll go back and see somebody. So I say, you know, come back if you get a fever of 100.1. Well, I had a fever of 100.0. I don't need to come. When do you stop being specific? When do you be general? You will see Dr. Smith in two days. We've set this up. Or return here immediately if worse in any way. You're right. You can't take care of the gap. But they ought to have some endpoint in this discussion when they need to do something. And as always, you're always open. I think it's better in general to invite them back in because the truth is that people always say, oh, then they'll be abusing the system they're coming in. I think that's crap. Most people don't want to come back. Most people who do come back, something's gone wrong. They're either worse, we didn't give them the right instruction, but I think the number of people who abuse this is very small. We may have a little disagreement on this, Greg. Because I'm of the view that I would like to put the burden on the patient. And there are only three things that a medical condition can do. It can persist, it can worsen, or new symptoms can develop. That's it. 
So if you say, if your systems persist, as an example, you've got a sprained ankle. Generally, these are better in about a week to 10 days or so. If you're not substantially better in about a week, I think you ought to get rechecked. And that's kind of actually the vaguest one. The others are much more specific. If you have any, any, quote, new symptoms, if now you have a fever, now you have diarrhea, now you have something new, you're going to come back to this emergency department immediately. Not tomorrow, next day, immediately. And that's written on our chart. And the other thing is, what if the symptoms get worse? My headache is worse. My belly pain. When your symptoms are determined to be worse in your mind, you come back to this emergency department immediately. This makes it clear that the burden is on them. If they say anything is new, you should have come back. Right. You should have come back. I don't want to list this litany of watch for this in the setting of a head injury. Frankly, we do <clears throat> hand out head sheets, but I think that they're a joke. Head sheets have always been shown to be a joke. We collected them from a series of departments. Somebody actually had a head sheet that said, if the pupils are no longer symmetrical bilaterally, that was written on a head sheet. You are decorticate when that happens. Yeah, for exactly out loud. right. You're fit for nothing at that point in time. More than that, what patient actually knows what pupillary size symmetrical bilaterally means? You're talking about not my patient population. I'll tell you that right now. We need small words, short sentences, big block letters, nothing complex here. On the head injury stuff, I basically stopped using that and just say, if anything's wrong, come immediately back. Because right. this piece of paper that says, if your right arm doesn't work, if your left arm... So you've got somebody at home doing a neurological exam <laughs> on their kid. They can't do that. Yeah, it's basically new or worse. New or worse. Yeah. Because sometimes they say, well, if he vomits more than twice, huh? Yeah. Where's the data on that? Vomits more than twice. You see that on head instructions all the time. Right. It's ridiculous. Yep. Total waste of time. By the way, the most common piece of paper outside the emergency department in the trash are the instructions that you gave. Well, you know, I'm concerned. We don't have computerized instructions, and I know a lot of people think that's kind of really strange. We have been in business using the same aftercare instructions since 1975. For 33 years, we've been using the same aftercare instructions. We have not gotten into trouble based on our aftercare instructions in 33 years. So the idea of you creating this little medical textbook, right. here's the fever, here's <clears throat> the page for the vomiting, here's the page for the diarrhea, here's the page for this, that, and the other thing, these are laymen. You might have it in big print and sixth grade language, yep. but who's going to read all <clears throat> that stuff? Rick, I couldn't agree with you more. Our hospital has gone to it. Now, there's no way that if I've given out one prescription that there's going to be less than five pieces of paper to go home with. So here's what I pointed out. I don't want education, I don't want learning to take precedence over instructions. So the first things that are printed out are you will see Dr. Smith in 24 hours. You will take this, you will do that. Because all the rest of these sheets of paper have to do with amplification of things, like you've been put on amoxicillin, it does this and that. It's a semi-synthetic penicillin like all these people are what biochemists in their spare time i mean this is a bunch of crap and why we're doing this i have no idea no there's a whole industry on computerized discharge instructions billions of dollars because it makes sense to us that more is better if i give them a big thick wad of paper surely that's better look at how thorough we're being and you're saying it's completely impractical they're not going to read it more than that i'm not a believer in the bigger is better theory 
And I think you need to get short and to the point and draw it to a close because the inverse square law works here. The amount read is inversely proportional to the amount written. It's like when my kid came home when he was in high school and he had a copy of a little black and yellow striped pamphlet. Cliff Notes. And it said on the outside, by the way, Cliff died. You know that, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) The entire eulogy. A minute and 20 seconds, yeah. <laughs> but uh, he comes home with cliff notes and says Moby Dick on the outside. And I said, that's not Moby Dick. And he says, it's close enough. <laughs> and so I think that Samuel Cullen's line that a classic is a book that's often quoted and never read is exactly right. If you bring it down to a few sentences that are true instructions, you're much better off. To yep. go along with that, by the way, our next point is, if you really want to screw the thing up, use a lot of medical language. Patients really like that, don't they? You know what? These are good people. The problem is you and I have learned a 10,000-word vocabulary, which they have no clue what that is. And usually when I'm teaching this in a room full of doctors, I'll point to someone and say, what's the Pittman arm in your car? Well, you're not dumb. If I brought a 10th grade boy from the auto shop here, he'd know exactly where the Pittman arm is, as opposed to the idler arm on the steering mechanism. Why would you have to use a technical term? I always remember the guy when the resident came down to me and said, Mr. Smith is leaving. Well, I'd seen his EKG. He wasn't leaving. I said, what'd you tell him? He said, I told him he was having acute anterior inferior myocardial infarct. So I walked down and said, Mr. Smith, do you realize you're having a big heart attack? You could fall over dead, flat out dead. You want to stay? He said, sure. He did not understand all the issues that were being put forward. And there's nothing inferior about my infarction. Well, that's exactly the point in that story. He thought he was being called inferior. He was going to have a superior infarct or nothing. Any other comments about the medical language? What are your feelings about that? Absolutely. It's not otitis media. That's not on the aftercare instructions as a diagnosis. It's middle ear infection. It's not pharyngitis. It's a sore throat or something to that effect. These are laymen. You cannot expect laymen to act as physicians. You get no extra credit. In fact, you lose credit by using this highfalutin terminology here. Yeah. Otitis external. What the heck is? Oh, you got swimmers here. Oh, I got that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Think. That one they can relate to. It does require that you spend some time with people who aren't physicians or nurses, and you see it with people who've just graduated. Mostly, I see this. Is oh, they've absolutely. Just graduated. They've spent an enormous amount of time, money, and effort learning this stuff. And they've been desocialized. They don't realize that grandma has no freaking idea what you're talking about when you talk about the acute inferior myocardial infarction. Like, right. doesn't everybody know that? No. Everybody you've spent the last 10 years with does. Grandma doesn't know what you're talking about. How many times have you seen this, Greg? I'm writing, showing Greg yes. some It's F slash U in AM <laughs> with PMD. Right. It's, it's, it's physical I've, therapy. Physical I, therapy. I have seen if. doctors actually write this on right. an aftercare instruction. F slash U in AM with PMD. What are you thinking about to even consider that that is any way appropriate to be putting down? Yet I see doctors do it. Yeah. Well, I think that the problem is this. We surround ourselves with a body of information which is good for you and I to communicate. Because when I say to you the hematocrit and the hemoglobin and such and so, we know what the definition of those words are. So we've just replaced a lot of extra time talking about it. If I said to you they had Borhov syndrome, you immediately know what the answer is to the question on the table. There's no way that there's anybody out there in the lay public who doesn't deal with this every day who would know what the answer, what the system went wrong in Borhov syndrome. They just wouldn't know it. 
that's perfectly reasonable for us to have to translate it so that they understand the point. And I think the biggest thing to remember is half the college graduates in the country don't know the difference between a bacterium and a virus. So if you think the average person who's walked into the emergency department knows what you're talking about, the answer is no. Dumb it down. Dumb it down. Make it real dumb. And it's like you say, it's not to be derogatory. It's not dumb. It's just you don't realize you have a completely different language. It's like writing in Chinese characters to put F-U-P-M in the... BMD, it's like, as Greg might would say, as well he's a morning kind of guy. I'm a morning you know. kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Hey, they gave me a prescription here, uh, honey. I got to do this in the morning. With yeah, you. yeah, yeah. The doc I'll says slice so. you. <laughs> Let's do another one of these that relates to an earlier discussion we had. Assume they're all drunk until proven otherwise. I've seen that time and again and time and again. And I always worry when there's a change of shift and somebody says, well, he's just sleeping it off in room five. That's the one I want to go in and see. That's the one I screwed up. Because I hate it Uh, when I go in there and one eye goes one way and one guy goes the other, or one pupil goes up and one goes down. You know what? That doesn't look like sleeping it off to me. No, I remember that one well as a resident. I handed that exact patient over to my colleague who's now at Harvard. He's just drunk. He's sleeping it off and he gave me the follow-up the next day. Remember that guy you told me was just... Yeah, the, he's in the OR. Remember that pa- sucking out the subdural that I'd missed. Remember that patient is the one line that when you hear it, no emergency doctor wants to hear because oh. they're not about to give you the Nobel Prize in medicine. Nobody's going to say, "Remember that guy you saw last night? He did just great, and he wanted to tell you you're a fabulous doctor." I've never heard that in 33 years. My sphincters just completely <laughs> let loose when I oh. Oh, no. Oh, please. Oh, God. Next, never call the family or friends. You know what? They've got to go home with somebody. you got to transfer guilt and responsibility. Talk to the family and the friends. Because they often give you information you never got from the patient. So, doctor, is that why both arms started to shake and their eyes rolled up in their head and they peed on themselves? Do that again? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell you the amount of interesting information I've gotten from a family member or friend on a confusing case. And I think it's a mistake, particularly when you're sending home grandma or somebody. If you haven't invited in the family for the conversation, I just tell the nurses, we're not ready to discharge yet till the team that came in with them is in the house. Well, I see two problems there. One of them is the department's busy and some of these nurses are like little generals and they just don't want any family members back with the patient. There's some privacy issues. There's some other people here. But the fact of the matter is, is anytime there's a VIP who comes in, they always got a family member in. And we're not asking for five or ten people to come back. We're asking for one person to come back. And you could say, listen, we're pretty busy right now. We're pretty crowded. Please sit right here. Don't wander kind of thing. That would be a reasonable thing to do. I've seen people who've been in the emergency department for hours they're going about to be discharged, and nobody ever talked to the family who's been sitting out there because you didn't even know they were sitting there. Nobody told you they were there, and it's like, what's the story? I do think there's an obligation on the part of clerks, nurses, triage to say, you know, the wife is outside or the daughter's outside. 
But to leave those people sit there for hours not knowing what's going on, and that happens all the time. Yeah, we're pretty benign where we are right now about that, and we've come a long way. I remember sort of the brown shirt school of nursing. You will sit there, you will like it. That's kind of gone out now. That went out with red meat. And to a very great degree, I like to have somebody in the room because we're seeing a lot more elderly patients. I want a daughter or a son who can give me real history. More than that, they can watch them to see if they're going to crawl out of the bed. You notice I didn't review any in the emergency department slip and fall cases today, but I've got them where failure to properly monitor, you know what? Let their daughter or their son monitor them while they're there in the room. You know, show them where the nurse button is and the TV set and all that other kind of stuff. And I think that they wait better. The time passes faster. You can only count the number of holes in the ceiling tiles so many times, and then you're bored. And now we're doing more of these big workups in the department. They're going down for a CT scan And, Rick, I don't care what you say. I can't stop my radiologist from giving the contrast. It's going to happen. And I think that that makes it a three- or four-hour experience. You know what? Invite the family in. Let everybody talk about this because it's going to happen. You might as well make friends with everybody. Yeah, two points I'd make is I believe that once a year you should be in the emergency department as a patient or as a patient's relative. Because it's only until you do that you realize they disappear behind this black hole. You're worried about them. And time travels very slowly under those circumstances. Yeah, but you cannot do that telling people you're a physician. Right. You cannot get any special privileges. You cannot be treated as a VIP. You need to be treated like all of the other people out there. Yeah. Well, the last few times I've done it and they've known I was a physician, it still sucked horribly. And it's like, (laughs) oh, my God, if it's this bad now. So that's one thing I'd suggest. And the other thing that we really haven't done well with our design of emergency departments is we should have table tennis tables and video games and other crap to do because there are times where, you know what, it's going to be six hours for the CT. Give them a PlayStation or something. You know, something simple like that would really make a big difference. We had a big fish tank in one place. The problem is in that particular neighborhood, we had to put a sign about no fishing on the tank. (laughs) uh, It was pretty good. But you're right. We ought to have amusements. We ought to have things that they can do, video arcades. They can put their tokens in or something like that. Disneyland would do it better. You're right. Disneyland would do it better. I've advocated that every doctor and every nurse should have an organ removed every five years. (laughs) I've said this over and over again. I mean, we have lots of unnecessary organs. The hospitals could use the money because we're all insured. And we'll get to see what it's like to have an IV started without lidocaine, to have a gown that doesn't cover your tush. An NG tube you don't need. (laughs) Um, The litany is when you talk to doctors who have had recent medical experiences, they get it. They get it for a while, at least, in terms of how important the touch of a nurse is. You're in a dependent position. You're a little scared about what's going on. Kind of think all of these things really matter. I really do believe, seriously, every five years, Mel, I think your appendix ought to be taken out. You don't need it. Kind of, it's just <laughs> going to be trouble. Kind of thing, you know. And women. Five years is too long for me. Honestly, I need to, me personally, I need to get this message about every six months because I let it wane. I'm at a county hospital, the waits are long. You're in a place which is like two standard deviations off the bell in that people tolerate six hour waits kind of thing. We have the greatest patients in the world. If you made most of the patients in this country to wait away our patients, they would be gunning you down with shotguns after 12 (laughs) hours. But our patients are great. Yep. Do one more. We've got about time for one more. Let's all right, go. just one more. And let's take one that we can all agree with, and that is don't read the nurse's notes. 
I can't tell you the number of cases I've seen where the nurses have something in that note which the doctor wasn't aware of, didn't think about, never paid any attention to, and the truth is they probably never, ever looked at what the nurse had to say. One of the first things you ought to do when you pick up the chart is at least see what you've got to answer. Let me give you an example. Nurse says the patient has rebound tenderness. Now that's written on that chart. Now to me, rebound tenderness means certain things. I'm looking at peritonitis or something like that. You walk in, that's not what you see. Well, then you're going to have to amend that chart. What you're going to write in your note is nursing note appreciated, which means nursing note unappreciated, but it's there and I've got to say something (laughs) about it. So you've got to go back and do something. I think that the nursing notes, you can't have a great variance between the nursing notes and the doctor's notes. Somebody's got to bring those together to make some sort of intelligent point. Right. The chart must be internally consistent, consistent. with the disposition, or it will be internally consistent with the deposition. Yes. If you don't read the nursing note today, it'll be read to you in court. That's exactly right. You, <laughs> well, can, you although, can read it today or from the stand. You have a choice. Although there is a problem. The nurse's notes are just not what occurred in the beginning where they write this down. They're writing stuff all along, and some of them are writing a lot more than others are writing. So this is an ongoing process, and you never look at the subsequent notes that they've written. Well, actually, (laughs) I do. And what you ought to do is this. The nurses ought to know that any time they write a negative nursing note, the nurse or the techs, they have to inform the doctor. If the patient's not getting better from the pain medicine, You can't just write a note. 30 minutes after the delauded, not better, the next line ought to be Dr. Henry informed. Because we don't care whether you wrote it down. What we care about is I did something about it at that moment in time. And I think that's important. What about the electronic medical records where the nurses go in, put their ID in, and they're writing these notes in their their notes fields in the electronic medical record. You haven't even seen that thing. You don't necessarily access their records to look at it. That, In some ways, it's clearly worse that way, more dangerous that way. I think some of these new electronic records are the biggest bunch of crap I've ever seen. They go on forever. They're pages and pages. Macro, macro, macro. Macro, macro. You cannot get at the point. Get to the point. The point is... They came in with X. We gave them Y, pain medicine. They got better or they didn't. They're doing this, they're doing that. I think that some of these electronic records where you can't see them or get into them are a total waste of time. No, I think it's worse. It's called dangerous. It's dangerous. It's called dangerous. And Theoretically, you can bop back and forth between them, but there are issues in terms of how convenient. If you have a paper record, you just pick that thing up and look that there's been an addition. Now, no, you have to sit down, put it, swipe your card kind of thing, access the record. It's ridiculous, and you have to ask the question, electronic medical records, faster or better? Faster or better? Is it faster? Absolutely not. Is it better? Prove it. You can't prove that it's better. This is your pet peeve. We need to let you uh, go off on this at another time. Before we do one, i got to say, I believe this so much, I only tell two things to the incoming residents. We've got brand new incoming residents, and I said you can avoid 90% of the M&Ms at our place by, one, reading the medical record, reading the nurse's record, and checking the vital signs. If those two are good, 90% of the problems we have go away. Vital signs are vital. Vital. Vitus. Life. Life signs. Yes. Essential. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, there is time. Yes, there is time for a little bit of a summary here. So let me get busy. 
First of all, we talked about protecting your assets. Protecting your assets. Um, get busy. Get a lawyer and go over your circumstances. Everybody's circumstances is different. And make sure you're protected because, as the boys have said, you are not necessarily uh, protected against a lawsuit, even if you've got malpractice insurance. They might come after your personal assets. They might come after your corporate assets. So work out uh, you know, what you should be doing. This is muy, muy importante. It's very important so that you can sleep well at night. I can tell you that after I was with the boys and we talked about this stuff, I went straight to my lawyer friend and said, uh, just exactly where are we up to with this stuff? And we've modified and tweaked because the last thing you want to do is work a career, half a career, three quarters of a career, a full career, get sued and then lose everything. That's uh, not good. So get on that, please get on that. Now, the second one to talk about is something we've talked about before, and that is the idea of competency. If your patient is not competent, not uh, cogent enough to make decisions for themselves, then you are, by the medical profession, by law, able to make decisions for them. Whether it's a rectal exam and a trauma patient who's altered or intoxicated, or whether it's some other procedure, your job is to look after that patient to take charge and to do the right thing, even if they say, I don't want you to do that. If that person is uh, intoxicated, if there's something going on which makes you think they're not making the best decision that they could make, then you make the best decision for them. Look after them. Afterwards, yes, they have the potential to say, that was battery. Uh, I'm going to sue you for doing that to me. You are much more likely to win that case than the opposite, which is, okay, I won't do that because you told me I shouldn't. And then later on, something bad happens and they come back and say, Surely the doctor should have known I was intoxicated or I was uh, in grief or I was, there was something else going on. I couldn't make a rational decision at that point. They're the cases you lose. We've done it a few times. Remember it. Follow up. Remember, if you order a test, then your job is to follow it up. Now, if you've made very specific plans to have that test followed up by the primary care doctor and it's not an emergency problem, uh, I don't need to deal with this today, but Dr. X, I've talked to him and he's going to follow it up on Wednesday, that's a different thing. But if you draw the blood cultures and send the person into the night, you better have a mechanism to follow up those blood cultures or whatever other test you've done, either yourself or your department or your nurse practitioner or PA follow-up program, whatever you have, have it in place because it will save you. It will save you a lot of the time. Remember, you can use drugs off-label. Just because a drug wasn't uh, specifically FDA-approved for something that everybody uses it for doesn't mean you can't use it. Um, when we give lectures, okay, that's a different story. We have to talk about off-label uses and why we're saying it's okay. But as long as a reasonable number of your colleagues or the literature or it's sort of a broad standard of care that people use a drug a certain way, then it's okay to use drugs off-label. Don't ask a question uh, unless uh, you want to know the answer. Don't draw tests unless you want to know the answer was the summary there. We then talked a lot about bleeding. Now, this is important. These activated uh, plasma concentrates are big right now, and they reverse INRs in patients overdosed on Coumadin much better than FFP. Now, uh, FFP is often not fresh and not frozen. It's just plasma, and you have to give a lot of it, and sometimes you have to give, as we said, to really get somebody from an INR of three and a half to four back down to one, two liters. So this is a big problem because that's too much fluid or it takes too long or you don't have it. So we're going to talk more about these plasma concentrates uh, on things like MRAP and EMA and even on risk management monthly. So as we know more about these, we'll talk to you.
Duty to third parties, either known or unknown. This is important. And we talked about this again about a year ago, the idea that if uh, somebody is in your emergency department and you give them a very sedating drug and put them in their car and then they crash the car, you should have known that you were putting them at risk uh, to these unknown but uh, sort of definable third parties like you and me driving down the freeway. So make sure you tell people, don't drive your car when I've given you 15 milligrams of morphine, this kind of stuff. Discharge instructions. Keep it simple. There was a little back and forth there between Greg and Rick about discharge instructions, but we all agree that they should be specific and as simple as possible. So you should say, follow up at this time with this doctor. Come back for these symptoms, but you also need to keep it broad enough so that uh, it captures all those other things that might happen. If you're too specific, it can be a problem. If it's too broad, it's clearly a problem. And then Greg started going over a number of other pearls there about, you know, make sure you're nice to the patients, bring them back from the waiting room very quickly, talk to them in language that they understand. And this is also very true on the discharge instructions. Remember that you speak a foreign language to anybody that's outside the medical profession. So make sure that you bring it down to their level. Change the language into a language that they understand, the language of the everyday person on the street. This is true when you're talking to them, and this is true on the discharge instructions, and the acronyms that you and I use mean nothing to you and I, let alone the patients that we are looking after. So I thought it was a very good risk management monthly this month. The boys were on. It was fun. Let's now do a little wine of the month. We've run out of time, but we have to do one of the month. Quickly, let's go. Hogue. Hogue is the new producer. Hogue? Hogue. That's my wife's maiden name. H-O-G-U-E. Scottish. Uh, And this is a Riesling. This is Columbia. And I think that Columbia Valley, which is a great area, it's a wonderful Riesling. And I think that this is the bargain of the last three months. This is great wine for $9 a bottle. The wine wine spectator says, and you know, spectator, they have selections from a lot of different areas, but they listed it and they said, this is a surprise. Nine bucks a bottle. Go for it. Hogue, Riesling, Columbia Valley. Excellent. All right. That's all we have time for. Thank you, boys. Bye bye. I got in trouble for calling you girls. (laughs) That was ladies. (laughs) Bye bye for now. See See you.